Hello and welcome back. This episode of the podcast has been sponsored by our generous patrons over on patreon.com forward slash Red Hills Rancher. Check the show notes for a link. This week, a couple of my friends joined me to talk about what it's like raising pastured hogs in Texas Hill Country around a feral hog population. We talk about dogs and predation on sheep and their experience with farmers markets and managing old world blue stem grasses. So sit back and enjoy episode 74 with Maggie and Jeremiah Eubank from Pure Pastures, Texas. So with us, we've got uh, Jeremiah and Maggie Eubank from Pure Pastures, Texas. Welcome to Ranching Reboot, guys. Hi, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, Brian. Well, well thanks for doing this. I appreciate both of you being here. Um, so let's start off. Let's, uh, why don't you tell us just a little bit about yourselves and where you're, where y'all are at? So we are in Canyon Lake, Texas, which is about an hour north of San Antonio, uh, right in the middle of the hill country. Arguably the most beautiful place in Texas, but also one of the uh, harshest environments in Texas, I would say. Um, we manage a 2000 acre ranch in, the, in Canyon Lake that is, we produce um, grass fed beef, uh, grass fed and finished beef and lamb, and then pasture raised pork and eggs. And we have two boys that you know, eat everything. So that's why we got to raise everything. They're eating us out of house and home. But I can't imagine the guy sitting to your right has anything to do with that. No, I mean, when people come to our store and they ask me like, I have a family of six, do I need two packages of bratwurst? It's like, I don't know. I have a family of four and I have to cook a pack for each of us because they eat like barbarians. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea how much, how much meat real people eat. Or regular people, I guess. Yeah. Well, how long will a half last me? Um, uh, I don't know. I kind of know how long it lasts me. I don't know about you. Yeah, <laughs> you know? exactly. Um, so how long have you guys been there? We've been here on this ranch for uh it'll be three years in October. Okay. And we've been doing kind of direct market stuff since 2015. How'd your direct why did your direct market stuff start? And how did it start? So we started, um, we actually started on a little place. Uh, it's just about 10 acres. It was about an hour south of here. And we started with pigs. And we just kind of wanted to raise some for ourselves. And then, you know, pigs are pigs. And, you know, there's a reason we have a wild, wild pig problem, you know, because um, they make more of them fast. And so we wound up with a lot, a lot of babies and started sell them to friends and uh and other folks and you know kind of went the farmer's market route and um started trying to make a business out of that i guess and grow it and um we were leasing some property across the road and place place a little further away running a few cows and then um we got the opportunity to come up here and and take over this management of this ranch and did that in 2019 very cool. We were both working oil field jobs when we very first started. Um, and then it was kind of like, oh, you're raising pigs. We would like a pig. Can you raise one for us? And it's like, sure. And it's like, oh, well, now my friends want a pig. Can you do that? And it's like, yeah, sure. And then I got fired from the oil field. So 
it kind of that's I would say that's really when like the retail side of it kicked off because there was somebody that had time to do it like we tried to make it into a real thing okay so uh, let's turn back the clock so Jeremiah where where are you from and and what was your education like up to the point where you met Maggie I guess hey so uh nothing before me matters <laughs> Uh, she reminds me of that all the time. Um, so you can leave out the details that really don't matter. <laughs> I uh, or I get you in trouble. In, yeah, yeah. Um, I grew up in Millsap, Texas. Uh, basically, spent my whole childhood there. A uh, little small school, graduated like fifty in our class, I think. Um, and then I went to uh, went to school at Tarleton State in Stephenville. Um, and that's, that's where I met Maggie, you know, that's it all. Did you grow up in it town? It all started or, at, huh? Did you grow up in town or out on land? No, we had, we, we were rural. I mean, we had a little place there and, uh, dad ran a few cows. It's like a little 30, 40 acre place. Um, ran a few cows, just kind of, you know, country kid. Uh, my granddad was a barber in in weatherford texas just you know kind of next door to us there and he always ran a bunch of cows and i've made the correlation that we're kind of doing a lot of the same things he did because he had the barber shop and then in the in the front window of his barber shop he had a sign there that said you know beef halves and holes for sale and and he had a farm where he raised uh some cows and and fed out a few calves every year and and had a freezer there in the back of the barbershop where he sold all that beef and so we're kind of you know kind of trying to get back to that same idea interesting business model come in yeah get a haircut get a shave a couple pounds of burger for uh dinner that night yeah. i dig it he was way ahead of his time it worked pretty well for him and you know those are those are all cash business so it's uh you know that's not a bad thing Yes. Yes. So, so Maggie, <laughs> how about you? How did you get to Tarleton State University? Well, I am uh, originally from a little tiny town called San Antonio, Texas. Um, I don't know if you've I've heard, heard of, of that one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I grew up on a sprawling quarter acre corner lot <laughs> in the middle of town. Uh, I'm a city kid, but my high school was a magnet school for FFA. And I had always wanted to be a vet when I grew up. Um, so I went into FFA. My, my mom's family is rural. They live out in kind of towards East Texas. They raised quarter horses and, and you know, lived on land and stuff like that. Um, so I got into FFA and got very involved and interested in agriculture um, and then went to Tarleton from there. Figured out pretty quick that I'm not doctor material, uh, but I did pursue a degree in agriculture. So um, okay. it kind of led me, led me to this. I didn't, I didn't realize at the time that all of the FFA contests that I was doing were pretty much exactly what I would be doing as a job. I mean, I did sales and marketing contests and things like that in uh, FFA. So it was pretty neat to see that come to fruition. My ag teachers are still stunned that of all the kids that go through the program, I'm the one <laughs> that's still doing it. 
Interesting. I, I never really thought about that. Like, and this is, I guess, part of my paradigm. 4-H around here was was probably a little bit different. And it was the show cattle world that I'm kind of talking about. And that never had any appeal to me. Like, I, I didn't understand that. Like, we're going to take one out of the herd and really pamper them and really fluff them up and really make them look good. And that's going to represent what's out in the pasture. That's, right. that's not how that works. Yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't think that's how that works. So maybe that was me and I, I never really understood FFA, but you know, those are great points that a lot of what you learn in there, you're still carrying over to running your, you know, running your direct con- consumer business. That's, that's kind of the first time I've heard that. And I, hopefully it won't be the last. Well, and I think it, it's, it's different because I think it being an urban FFA chapter had a lot to do with it. You know, like we had a 40 acre farm behind my high school where everybody kept their animal projects. So we didn't have to keep them at our house. We had, it's one of the biggest ag programs in the state. And now they have, um, when I was in high school, I cut meat at my high school for three years. So we had a butcher shop at the school which there's one, only three in Texas that have that. That's, or that's there really were at that cool. time. I don't even know if there's still three. Um, we didn't harvest anything there. It was all harvested at the Excel plant that used to be in San Antonio. But um, you, you so could we, break down a primal. Yes. Yeah. We got whole, we got whole carcasses in and we okay. broke them down, packaged them and everything like that. Um, but since everything was there, the focus wasn't, and, it, and we weren't all rural kids, the focus, we had show teams and we all showed animals and everything like that, but they had a large focus on, um, there's career development events in FFA and leadership development events in FFA. And so they always, we always had a big showing um, at contests for those kind of things, which is at the time, you know, I was kind of just doing it to get out of school because then I got to be gone all the time because I was competing. <laughs> um, but it, it really is. I mean, it's exactly what I'm doing now. Interesting. Very interesting. What about you, Jeremiah? Uh, as far as that, and yeah, I showed a little bit in high school too and FFA too. Um, we did, I, I showed pigs. We we just, we were doing, I was doing a bunch of other stuff. I played sports and everything. So we didn't get too wrapped up into the, like the show cattle deal. And uh, I don't think my dad was crazy about throwing a bunch of money at it. And pigs were about as far as he wanted to go. So, and I think that's, that's probably a little bit the reason we actually got into pigs is because we both had a little bit of experience with them originally. And it was, it was an easy thing to do when we started out that you know we had enough experience and and a small enough land base that it was like well you know that's kind of about the only thing we can efficiently run you know well and in texas you can get good beef i mean everybody does beef in texas right it's it's pretty easy to find good beef no one especially at that time was doing pork pastured pork Are, are a lot more people doing pastured pork now it seems like there, I don't know if there's more people doing it now, or we just know more people that are doing it now. Um, but I, I, it seems like there are more people getting into it. I think you're starting to see, especially with the the COVID stuff and the, um, not to, now you're going to have to put that tag warning thing 
I don't do that. Spotify does that for me. Yeah. Well, sorry. Um, but but with that, I think we started seeing a lot more uh, homesteader type interest in those those animals and stuff, and kind of everybody, you know, with a big enough backyard, thinking they might need to put something back there that that they have control over. So I wonder. I'm seeing the same thing too, and I'm not saying that it's a bad thing. Right? Oh, I, I don't think it is either. I'm just wondering how many wrecks we're going to have later down the line with things like that. There's, I mean, I see a fair amount of people wearing a bunch of pig groups, Texas pig groups, and on Facebook. And there's always people that got pigs that can't have pigs now, or they don't want pigs now, or, you know, a, a lot of people that I think had a jaded view of what it's like to produce your own food and just kind of went in with both feet because everybody felt like they needed to it was scary um but it's just like you know buying a bunny at easter once that bunny grows up it's not as fun or cute and so you either let it go or find somebody to buy it yeah they're all animals are cute when they're really little the problem is they grow up to be big things like, you know, everybody right. loves puppies, but not everybody loves to deal with the 14 year old dog with hip problems. Right. Right. And, and pigs are hilarious until they're tearing up your whole yard. And, you know, they're, they're a lot of labor for sure. A lot of management labor and it can go south really quick. So, okay. So we're talking about pigs and management and, you know, things that can go wrong. Feral pig population is is there a large feral pig population near where you guys are? And how does that affect your pig management practices? Yes. Yeah, so there is a pretty good population here. And um, where we're at on the ranch, we, we've kind of got where we keep all the pigs is in a separate pasture from everything else. So um, like I say, it's a 2000 acre ranch. We're on the pigs are kept on about 60 acres of it that's fenced off separately and it's all high fenced and it's all it's really tight fence so we've got control over pretty much good control over what comes in and out of here so aside from a couple water gaps here and there that that they might be able to get through we're able to keep all the pigs you know all the feral stuff out of here um is that more of a concern than your stuff leaving? Yes. Yeah. So okay. we're able to manage all of ours with, with electric fence. We've got paddocks set up with just two two hot wires that are set at, you know, eight and 18 inches, I think. And um, it, it, it does a good job of keeping them all in. Pigs, pigs that are very smart and they know where that wire is at and what they can do and what they can't. And ours know where their feet is and where it isn't. Like if they get out, they're going to get back in because they know that somebody's going to come feed them. That's always a good point. That's always a good thing. Yeah. yeah. Since we've been up here, we've only had um, maybe, I think, three wild pigs get in here. So they came pretty, in, but they didn't leave. So is, it pretty, is it pretty <laughs> easy to tell when you got one loose? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. For sure. For sure. They're... Uh, they just they act totally different and 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 while our you know a lot of our pigs are black they're there's just definitely a different build to them too the the feral stuff down here just 
looks skinny and wild and about half wormy. So we had some get loose up here, gosh, probably close to 20 years ago, maybe a little bit more than that. Yeah. And when I came back in, um, uh, 2006, seven, eight, I think it was about 2008. They, the, the state decided, okay, yes, we have a pig problem in Kansas. And the way they dealt with it is they didn't allow hunting. They got a bunch of money funneled around through, um, Kansas Department of Health and Environment through their kind of veterinary services. Uh-huh. Um, they got with USDA Wildlife Services. They hired a helicopter, and these guys shot hogs out of a helicopter down here. There were several days where they shot well over 300, and every carcass had to be retrieved, tagged, and blood sampled, and then they hauled it off to a disposal pit. It took them, it took them four years first couple of years of trapping then three good hard years of flying um, to get, to get the population managed. And yeah. they, they've pretty much got them hunted out of our area and no more coming up into Oklahoma. Man, once they get established, it is, it's awful, awful hard to get rid of them. Yeah. The, and I don't, that, that no hunting deal is, is kind of tricky there because the hunting is part of the reason there's so many of them. Right. And it's become a pretty big business here. And even the helicopter hunt, I mean, it's nothing in Texas to, to go pay somebody to sit in a helicopter for an hour and go shoot, shoot pigs out of it. I know so, it doesn't do a damn bit of good, but I kind of want to go do it because it looks yeah. like a lot of fun. Yeah, it does. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And it's a good cause, you know. So, um, but yeah, there's there's hunting, even pigs here is a big business, you know. So, and I know there's plenty of those hogs and, and probably not as much as there used to be, but I'm sure in the beginning, that's, that's what led to the proliferation of them was them getting moved around to be hunted. And, you know, even if it's like, even if they say it's an invasive animal, yeah, you can hunt them and we want to get rid of them. There's going to be breeders that are like, man, I'm making thousands and thousands of dollars a year people paying me to come down and hunt these hogs why would i ever want them to go away yeah exactly i've i've heard that from from landowners before and i think that's that's why if you have a pig problem you'll always you'll continue to have that pig problem until that policy is changed now we don't need to talk about how i feel about government government policies but sometimes there's one that comes down that actually does what it's intended to do and and those are pretty rare extremely Extreme. Yeah. yeah, I think we're probably in uh, in alignment on those uh, those ideas there. Uh, so went from primarily pig operation coming out of college to to the diversified acreage that you're on now. So, uh, beef, pork, lamb, eggs. Let's let's talk about some of that. Yeah, we um, when we were still at our other place, but we had gotten we least our neighbor's place across the street he had some yard cows to keep his ag exemption but he was an old man tax Um, cows yeah tax cows so uh we bought his tax cows and then still managed them over there and brought them over because our we had 10 acres but it was probably nine and a half acres of trees so not great for cattle, which is another reason why pigs were good. And we had chickens and ducks at the time too. So we were doing pork and eggs over there. Um, 
but so we had cattle across the street and then we had pretty much topped out our production on the acreage that we had. So we had been looking around for a place to buy or lease, which we didn't have the right last name to lease anywhere around there. It's, it was a very tight knit family community. Um, and even if somebody hated their uncle, if he had cows and needed a place to put them, they were gonna let him lease it before they did you. Um, plus the price of land. Yeah, we, uh, we were down near the Eagleford Shale. So the price of land was insane because yeah. it was just, it was a boom. So um, we found a place that was about 45 acres that was ridiculously priced low. So we pounced on it and then found out why it was priced low because it was had a tax lien on it. <laughs> but um, that was okay because we were gonna try to do it with an FSA loan. So it was gonna take a long time anyway. Um, so everybody agreed to it or whatever. And we asked them if we could start if we could lease it from them until the sale went through. Okay. So when we got that extra acreage, we decided to get into lamb and more into beef. Um, we kind of the same thing with pork. We are lamb eaters. We love lamb. There's not a lot of good lamb available. And the majority of people, the majority of Americans have only had mutton from Australia. You know, they get it at Costco, it's gamey. And, and I don't hate that lamb. That was the lamb that we were eating, but that's the strongly flavored gamey lamb. And it tastes you know, like lanolin. It does, it does. And when I tell people that, like most people don't even know that there's hair sheep and wool sheep, because why would they? They just know that there's lamb. They don't know what mutton is most of the time. You know, right. they just think that it's- Okay, well, for those of us that don't know, what is the so difference mutton, between- Mutton is a, a sheep that is over a year old. It's an, it's an older animal. So we had a grand uh, uh, anniversary party out here at the store not too long ago. And someone asked me what the difference between a sheep and a lamb was, like how they were different. And I was like, well, they're, they're not. Uh, a lamb is just less than a year old. So, um, but, so we got into lamb mainly so that we could have lamb because we liked to eat it but also because there was a market opportunity. There were not, there wasn't anyone in our area doing lamb. There weren't, and there's, there weren't many. And, and what I liked about the, the lamb deal too, running the numbers on it, it's, it's a lot more viable to, to be an animal that you just take to the sale barn and can make money that way. And you don't have to direct market. Your margins are a little bit better versus cattle. So the, the numbers just work out a little better. You have a place where you can go, where you can take lambs, like feeder lambs and sell them? Oh yeah, yeah. There's there's quite a few sale barns around here that have pretty pretty strong lamb markets. I mean- um, The hill country is, was, is sheep and goat country. Yeah. It's, you know, West Texas is big sheep and goat country, but the hill country is, is pretty big in it. I mean, we're only, we're only three hours, I think, two and a half, three hours from San Angelo, which is the biggest, market in in the country I've, so. I've been through the hill country and been through san antonio and there aren't enough goats in the universe to, no. <laughs> to, no. to make a difference no 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 there's not that's for sure 
So, but yeah, that's, uh, you know, Jeremiah was looking at it from that aspect. I was looking at it as, you know, it's a pretty niche product at this point. Um, and by then we were doing the, we had been doing the New Braunfels farmer's market for a while, which has a large, I mean, New Braunfels has a large German population and they are lamb eaters. Okay. Um, and then by that time we had just gotten into the Pearl, which was, I would say probably the biggest farmer's market in San Antonio. Um, and with a a clientele that can afford a niche product, that's the nicest way I can think of saying that. Okay. Um, I think I'm picking up what you're putting down. Yeah. So, um, it was kind of a no brainer for us to, for us to start it. Our processor said that they could handle it, um, and that they had processed sheep and lamb before. So we just went ahead with it. Good deal. Good deal. So let's talk about your cows. What kind of cows y'all got? Um, we have a mix of, uh, we've got some Coriannis. Um, I don't know that we're as fond of them as you are. And That's we've okay. got some Red Angus. And we're, we're transitioning more toward the Red Angus stuff. Um, and we've run some South Pole bulls on them. And I just turned out a couple of, a couple more uh, red Angus bulls today too. Okay. And just, just commercial stuff, no registered or any of that. So you're coming over the top of your Corrientes with red Angus bulls? We, well, they had been South Bowl over the top. Okay. And um, yeah, now it'll be red Angus. How do you feel about those South Pole Coriente calves? Um, the, I feel better about them than I do the full Coriente cows. Um, well, well, that's, that one's pretty fair. (laughs) We've got, we've got our first, uh, set of calves out of Corianne South Pole heifers on the ground now. Um, and there's not a whole bunch of them. It's, it's just a handful. The, uh, they're pretty good. Uh, I I think they're going to make pretty good mamas. Uh, I've not been impressed with the steer, like they, they haven't added a whole lot of beefiness to the steers. They're still kind of framey and, you know, um, just thin com- compared to, you know, a, a straight Angus or something like that. I, I understand what you're saying. I understand what you're saying. And I think so, that, I think that if you're going to look at like five heifer calves that are similar mamas and the same dad, You'll see, you know, you'll see probably two that you like and three that you don't. And it might not make sense what, you know, the cow they came out of. And I think that's just some of the genetics that we're dealing with in the Coriannes. Yeah. And yeah, it's so, you know, it's so varied in there. And and the ones we had were decent mamas and stuff. The the thing we get into, and, and I've made this comment to a bunch of people that I've talked to where they talk about in this goes not for just Coriannes or, but any of these smaller frame cattle and all the people that espouse, you know, you've got to get these super small cattle and all this stuff and you can run so many more of them. That makes sense for a cow-calf guy that's going to go sell 400-pound calves. Yep. That doesn't make sense to somebody selling ribeyes, especially right. in Texas, because nobody in Texas wants to buy a ribeye that's this big around. You know, we want big 
two pound ribeyes, you know, everything's Uh, got to be bigger in Texas. Exactly. Exactly. So we've, um, that's where I think that having those, those moderate size cattle are really important. Uh, the, the 700 pound pound cow ain't going to cut it. So and we I always explain it to people when they like people in the store when they ask us what kind of cattle we run, I tell them that we have a ground beef herd and we have a steak herd. And the ground beef herd is like when it comes to making lemonade out of lemons when grazing is concerned, you can't beat a Corani. I'm pretty sure we could go out there and <laughs> set them all on fire. They'd probably put themselves out and be better after they did it. But just they just don't finish the way that people down here want their beef and grass-fed and grass-finished beef is an uphill market even though it's kind of having good PR right now people think that they want it then they have a steak that's lean and then all they do is talk shit about grass-fed grass-finished beef and it's bad for everybody so we're kind of with the red angus they don't like you can tell you can go out in our pasture right now when it's over 100 degrees the red angus are all huddled up under a tree and the coriannies are out there tap dancing on rocks and eating thistles but, <laughs> yeah pretty much but they're not turning do. those thistles into ribeyes so that's it's kind of like we have to have one foot in each to make the business work kind of thing so you're talking about putting South Pole over your Coriennes, which I, I like that. And I've I've thought that was a good idea for a while. Um, so this is kind of like the first time I've talked about it. I just got um, my friend Richard, Hat Creek Cattle Company. There's your shout out. He brought me a, a special little bull. Um, by the time this comes out, it'll be a couple of weeks ago. So he'll have been at work for at least three weeks. So the bull he brought me is a Mashona South Pole cross bull. His Mashona mother came out of Jaime Elizondo's, uh, no, that's wrong. The oldest Mashona herd that's down in Florida that a lot of people associate with Jaime Elizondo. Yeah. His mama came out of there and his South Pole dad went to work in Virginia at Polyface Farms, Joel Salatin's place. Oh, cool. So, yeah, we turned him out, and um, hopefully he'll go to work on my two-year-olds, um, or the two and and the one-year-olds. Hopefully, uh, I've got a lot of two-year-olds that are that are straight up Coriene or Sale yeah. Barn cross, and probably most of my one-year-olds are going to be kind of the same. Um, the calf crop I've got on the ground now is the first one that I've bred all of it, and some of the calves that I got on the ground from this year look better <laughs> than. Than the one-year-olds from last year. I hate to say that. And I've yeah. got some, I've got some ones that were born last year that that are dang near the same size as some of my two-year-old, like full Coriente cows. Yeah. And and I've seen some of that too with these Coriantes is um last year's crop definitely looked better than the crop from the year before. Um size-wise and stuff, they grew out a lot better and I mean, I just attribute it to better forage, I guess. And, uh, but it's exact same breeding, you know, same cows, the same, same bull on those. So, uh, but it, it is a, a stark contrast between the two. I mean, they're, or again, really, it's not a contrast because they're near, if you look at them, you can't tell which one's which. Right. So they're nearly the same size. 
um, I, I guess the contrast is in how they've grown. <clears throat> And I've been I've been really watching the last I don't know sixty days of you know when we're on our best grass of how the cows are responding you know mine versus all the customer cows on the ranch and I mean just straight up they're not putting on the raw pounds that the other animals are but then again are they putting on their percentage based on weight probably are the some of them carrying a lot less fat than than the continentals definitely and those kind of get you know marked over in the ground beef herd and what you know what you guys have put the ground beef herd i have a little bit different of a name i'm not going to say on the air yet uh (laughs) (laughs) so and i'm not even going to say that i have a steak herd but i have a herd i have some i have a pool in there that i'm looking that had that i'm watching that has that potential to grow into that and is that a market to chase? Well, you know, we can all agree we we need to have a little bit more carcass size, but it needs to be a reasonable size. You know, 1,400, 1,600 pounds is way too much. You know, 1,200, that's a good spot to be. Yeah, that, that's what I was going to say. Kind of everything we we shoot for is to, to kill animals around that, you know, that 1,050 to 1,200 mark. And, and the ones we're running, they're – they're built well enough that we'll get good fat coverage and good intermuscular fat at that size. So without, and, and not have a lot of trim and leftover. And, you know, it's, I, I think that is that real happy medium where, it, especially for someone in our situation where we're the ones selling it, um, you know, we're, we're getting full utilization out of all of it and getting, the most dollar value out of it that we can. And we still, there's still a lot of customer education. You know, I talk about having that steak herd so that we can have bigger steaks, but still people still ask about why our steaks, why are they still so small? Especially with like briskets, you know, because Texans eat a lot of brisket. You can get a fully trimmed brisket from the store that's $12. Well, our brisket, as it comes straight off the, or 12 pounds, sorry um our our briskets straight off the animal as they come not trimmed at all might be 12 pounds <laughs> you know it's it's they're they're tiny compared to what you get at the store and so a lot of people have questions about that and we just tell them you know those those big animals aren't aren't what we're going for they they don't work in our system and and i think that it's important for people to see that that's not what animals with what all animals look like when i mean you know that's that's an unrealistic steak unrealistic steak i I was sitting here thinking about what did steaks look like in the 60s what did they look like in the 70s yeah you know before we before we really started you know mass industrialization of the feed yards and building these big massive feed yards i mean i get farmer feeders have been happening forever but you know back in the mid 50s what did a steak look like what not even talking about the pipeline to get it there or whether it was grass-fed grain-fed like how big would a ribeye have been six, you know 50 60 years ago and you said something about customer perception and, I, and i've thought about that a lot you know over the last couple of months 
you know, we have customer perceptions about, about farming and ranching in general. We've got customer perceptions about grass fed versus grain fed that, you know, that in every lie, there's always a negative truth, but then there's that truth can always be, you know, misinterpreted or misdirected. I guess what I'm saying is, you know, the public perceptions of how we eat and what we eat, I think to a lot extent are flawed and what we expect out of our food is, is, has been flawed for a while. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I would say 85% of my job is customer education and customer dealing with customer perceptions, preconceived notions about what food should look like or what it looks like or what's normal, you know, things like that. Our pork, if we process, sometimes we'll process a sow when they're, you know, done being a sow. Um, I could pull a rib chop off of one of those sows and put it next to a ribeye and you would not be able to tell the difference because they're the same size. They're the same color, that dark, dark meat. And I've had people ask me before what's wrong with our pork because it's not white pink. That's not because white that's what meat. That's, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's not meat. the other white meat. And, you know, to no fault, I mean, I don't want to say to no fault of their own because they could be out there doing their due diligence and, and researching things, but it's what they see at the grocery store. Like steak is red, pork is light pink. So they, they have no idea. I tell them this is probably the pork that your grandfather ate or your great grandfather ate. And they have no concept of that. They think that they think their steak should be bright red mm-hmm. with pure white with pure white flecks of fat in it. Mm-hmm. They think yeah. their pork should be light pink, almost white. They think their chicken should be whiter than bleached paper. Uh huh. And a seven pound whole bird. Yeah, and a seven pound bird, and you know they want their bacon for a dollar fifty a pound, and yeah. um, you know they want to go through McDonald's and eat off the ninety nine cent menu. Yeah. Most of, most of our customers, but I mean, they they came to us for a reason. They're at least somewhat informed, um, but because we're so close, I mean, you know, we're right in between two of the largest cities in Texas. So we have a lot of people just stop in because they're close. Um, and so there, there is still quite a bit of customer education. So how do you really feel about farmer's markets? Well, <laughs> since you asked, <laughs> I actually get this question a lot. Um, we have a there's we have a lot of friends that we have met because they're getting into farming, and so they've called and talked to me. We have, everyone's trying to put together a farmers market, which is something that I don't think is great. I mean the the market market is saturated. I feel. Okay. Um, but why, why do you say the market market is saturated? Because the the types of vendors that should be at a farmer's market, um, there's not enough of them to do a farmer's market every 10 miles. There's not enough enough farmers. There's not enough farmers. And, And if you put 10 farmer's markets in a town like New Braunfels, they're all just gonna cannibalize each other. That's, that's spreading customers to 10 markets where you could consolidate and have one really good, badass market where everyone goes. 
But I don't like that person that puts on that one three blocks away on Tuesdays. I want to have mine on Thursday after on Thursday mornings because I don't well, like them. But it's from my experience, it's more fun to talk shit to them to their face at a booth next to you than it is to talk shit behind their back. That's what all the farmers do at farmers markets. They just bitch within each other. I mean, but, uh, and and that's I mean, like we there used to be there's the farmers market in New Braunfels is on Saturday. There was one that started on Wednesday night that was kind of a situation where this the Saturday one was run by someone and someone else wanted to start another one so they started the Wednesday one and I think that you can do that but when you get into places like Austin and Houston that have tens of Saturday markets from nine to one every Saturday right you're just kind of diluting everyone's pool and you Um, wind up with a lot of stuff that's more artisan and and less farmers it it winds up being crafty type stuff and and all these other people that aren't aren't farmers or it's prepared food and it's just you wind up with just a bunch of tourists out there honestly and that jams and and jellies and candles and and that drives the the farmer's market customers away i've been a part of farmer's markets where they continuously um, get complaints about there not being enough farmers. Like there's too many other things out here. Um, but when it comes to farmers markets, what I will say is we don't do farmers markets anymore. Um, that it's not part of our business anymore, but I don't know that we would be to this point without a farmers market. They are a grind. They are hard on product, especially if you're selling frozen meat out of coolers um but they are great exposure and depending on the one you go to they are really cheap great exposure it's a way to get in front of customers and that was that was kind of where i was really wanting to end up or where i was hoping we would go is why don't you do farmers markets what was your experience with them and you just kind of summed it up that yeah, we've heard it before on their show, right, guys? Like, it's good. Farmers market is a grind. It's hell. They suck, but it's a necessary part to get your name out. And I, I think there's probably a fair amount of folks listening out there that are still doing the farmers market grind. That are like, yes, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Like, I right. can build my customers to the point where I don't need this anymore. I tell I tell everyone that asks me, farmers markets are an incredible incubator. Like you should absolutely, I, I, I don't ever discourage anyone from getting into a farmer's market. I think it's where you learn about your product. It's where you learn about your customer. It is the easiest way to educate your customers because they're there talking to you. I mean, you know, it's, it's not, they don't, it's not a phone conversation. It's not an email conversation. You're face-to-face. They can ask you questions. It's a conversation. And people like that. People always liked the time that we took with them at the farmer's market. For our business, it was not, it's just not sustainable. Um, we do, we have our retail store at the ranch and we do deliveries and we were doing wholesale and farmer's markets. And we just, even if the, it wasn't a drag on time and it wasn't hard on the product, we didn't have enough inventory to do all of those well. It was like, 
we were quarter assing four things and we needed to be whole assing two things. <laughs> I know how exactly how that feels. So, and that's, you know, I didn't, uh, we didn't burn any bridges at, when we left that the farmer's market in San Antonio. They're great people. Like, honestly, when I'm at, when I was at the farmer's market, I loved it. Like the four hours of the market, being with the other vendors, being with the customers, like it was great. That four hours was a 12 hour day. For right. me. And when it's 103 degrees outside for all four hours of that market, you know, that's pretty tough. But, you know, we I, I left that market on good terms. I've still talked to the people that run it. Um, but it's just not. I, I know that there are people that successfully do most of their business at farmers markets. I don't. I, I don't ever see how we could have done that. Like we needed, we needed to pivot to something else. So we opened the store. And I keep hearing that a lot from, from meat producers about farmers markets that it's, you know, it's great advertising, great exposure, but the workload to get there is a lot. And a lot of them wish they could, could quit doing it. Well, and for us, I made it even we talk a lot about whether we should continue to produce all of the proteins, but like all the other vendors, when they came, they would have like two coolers of meat because they just did beef or they just did pork or they just did lamb. I was hauling 750 quart coolers in and out of that farmer's market because I wanted to be fully stocked on all the protein. And that was if we didn't have eggs, like it wasn't egg season. If it was egg season, I was hauling in 270 quart coolers of eggs. Jesus. So it's, and then you still, the other part of that with all of that handling and the in and out and all that stuff, um, you're just touching that product so many times and you wind up with busted seals and stuff that you've got to sell at a discount or, you know, uh, stuff that gets too warm. Exactly. Well, um, and I couldn't like, I'm not going to take whole briskets to the farmer's market because they take up a lot of cooler room. You kind of have to like Tetris all of your meat into these coolers. Right. So there's days when I could have sold 10 whole briskets at the farmer's market, but I don't bring them because if I do bring them, they're taking up room from ground beef that I could sell. If you brought 10, you would have sold two. Yeah. Yeah. And then those people that want them aren't going to show up. So I would like pre-sell briskets. If you wanted a brisket, you could prepay for it. And then I would bring it. You could pick to pick it up at the market, but um, it just, it, and in some ways, limiting what you can bring to a farmer's market, like your choices is good. You know, people can get very overwhelmed if they're looking at 400 choices of meat at a farmer's market. Um, but yeah, it was just logistically, it had, it had really become a problem. And the other bad thing about it is too, you have, it's so hit or miss. I mean, you'll have a weekend where you just absolutely kill it and, and come home with barely anything left and but a wad full of money. And you'll the following weekend, it'll be exact opposite. You'll you'll sell a hundred, two hundred dollars and you didn't even pay for the gas to get up there. You know, so it it, it especially around here with these markets, they were very dependent on what else was going on in town or what the weather was doing if you know if it was miserably hot and there was some event going on it was just you'd get nothing and 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 so you just wasted all that time and money when you 
and that was our a lot of our rationale switching over to this store here at the back of the ranch and and just basically opening it up and we said well if we don't sell much at least we didn't waste the time going to the market and you know we're here at the ranch we can do other things in and around the shop and and, and at least be efficient of our time and not just sit there twiddling our thumbs right well and until nine months ago it was just jeremiah and i here like we didn't have any employees we didn't have any help it was just the two of us so we were limited in the amount of markets we could do like some of these big vegetable producers and meat producers they have teams of people they can do six markets in a day right. that might be sustainable you know that's that's a good model we were limited to to just two markets if we both went you know so that um that really limited us because then we were just banking our whole week's money like income on that one day which is not sustainable. Like, and if it was a bad week, then that was that bad week bled over it into like the next week. And then, you know, it just kind of and then it snowballs. Yeah. Right. So we, um, we, we opened, we quit one farmer's market to open the store. And then this year, 2022 was the, the year we didn't go back to the other one for 2022. We just decided to try to make a go of it. Now I will say, that decision was made a lot easier because COVID really changed the way people buy their food. Like we really didn't have a delivery business pre-COVID. Okay. And then that hit and delivery was our main business. People didn't want to, people weren't Nobody left their out. house. Yeah. yeah. It, it, I mean, it changed the way people buy things across the board, but it changed you know, we got customers because we offered delivery and we got customers because we had product, you know, we weren't out, we weren't limiting ground beef, we weren't limiting anything else. And so I think, I don't know that we would still be at farmer's market if it hadn't been for that, but it's a big reason. He's shaking it's, his head no. <laughs> yeah. Well, he wouldn't, that's why he's shaking his head. He would have been here. I don't know if I would have been at farmer's market still, but it, it, it gave us a good head start to make this decision because we still have, I mean, a lot of our delivery customers, now people are used to having their groceries delivered to them. So we have a lot of holdover customers from COVID. Okay. So tell me about, tell me about your store. Like, is it a karma store? Is it manned, unmanned? Uh, no, it, yeah, we definitely managed. We we basically took the same hours that we were working at the farmer's market for the longest time. Uh, we were just open Saturday and Sunday from 10 o'clock to 2 o'clock, and there'd be one of us up there. We'd both be in and out or whatever, and basically it is a a metal shop that's on the, a, you know, barn, workshop, whatever, um, that's here on the property, and it was already partially finished out and so we just went in there and set in initially it was three or four chest freezers that we put in there and basically opened the big roll-up door and said and the gate and said here we are come on out like any good meat purveyor we had uh, several facebook and craigslist freezers that we had been storing meat in right before we could get a walk-in so we basically just cleaned all those up and set them around and put signs on them and 
put meat in them. Um, but now, now we have uh, merchandise freezers and, and a fridge, the glass front ones. We still have some chest. I mean, it's still kind of janky, you know, if we're doing it one piece at a time, but nobody starts at the top. That's okay. Nobody does. Nobody does. But now we also carry other people's products. So like we have some friends that have a farm um, about 45 minutes from here that do pastured poultry, which is the thing that we are not into doing. So we buy their chicken and sell it at the store. Um, all of the foods that we got really used to eating because we were doing farmer's markets that we don't get anymore because we're not doing farmer's markets. We started carrying that stuff so that we could still eat it, but also because people that come out to the store like that kind of thing. It's, it's higher quality foods made by local producers um, that, that they can't really get out here. They would have to go to a farmer's market to get it. So um, we started carrying several products like that. Just things that are produced locally, people that we know um, that aren't anything that we would produce ourselves. Okay. Is, is that kind of correcting some of the issues you saw at farmer's markets where there is too much saturation of product? Not really. I mean, I, we're, we're, <clears throat> we're limited by space and what we could get, you know? So, I mean, we, if it came down to like, we didn't have enough lamb or something like that, or lamb and pork would be harder for us to source because not as many people do it. But like, if it came down to something, if we ran out of ground beef and we had a friend that had like a bunch of ground beef, we could source ground beef from them. Um, we just don't have enough room or really enough traffic to be stocking multiple producers of things that we produce kind of thing. I know? guess that was, that was kind of what I was leading into is, you know, are your customers happy with what you have or are they asking you for different offerings? Like not necessarily just different proteins, but are they asking for like say vegetables or baked goods or things like that? They do. We get asked for vegetables quite a bit. Um, and I'm trying to figure out we're part actually yesterday, we're part of a co-op that does like a, a monthly meat share and a monthly vegetable share, and they take off July through October. So the vegetable producers don't have anywhere. A lot of them don't do farmer's markets because of the reasons that we spoke of earlier. And they probably um, move their product through the, through the, through the co-op. Right. Oh. So I was talking to some of them about if they, if they wanted to bring us what they have that we would sell it in the store um, because we don't have a vegetable operation. It's something that we've talked about, but again, there's only us. So, but. And, and I feel that acutely. Like, so how common are um, I mean, vegetable farms, truck farms, you know, small scale family farm. <laughs> I hate to say family farms because, you know, family yeah. farms is like everything. Everybody's, a, yeah, Cargill's right. a family farm, right? right. My, my left foot. Um, but, you know, farms that aren't on a massive, massive industrial scale that are primarily still tended, you know, with, with a lot of human labor to grow, right. to grow, you know, a wide variety of edible crops. I'm not talking like, you know, a 500 acre soybean farm or a 500 acre watermelon patch, right? You know, right. Right. I mean, they're in this area, they're pretty common. And it seems like more and more are trying to start up like that homesteader mentality that we were talking about earlier. The problem is, or the problem that I that I've noticed 
which is not just for here, it's it's everywhere, is that you know, we all know that that farming and ranching, especially on a small scale, is very romanticized and people get into it because they feel called to it, because they like the lifestyle of it, but they're not, they don't understand the margins of it. They're not, they don't treat it like a business, you know? And a lot of times they get real good up and going and then they have to shut down because they can't pay, they figured out they can't pay their bills or they don't want to have to work an off-farm job and do this and everything like that. So there's a lot of starting up here and then not making it, um, which, you know. It sucks to watch. It does suck to watch. And I, I have a lot of feelings about how, like better ways that it could work for, for those kind of people, you know, like um, reasons why they can't get into it and can't be successful. But we actually, for, for the, for the part of Texas that we're in, there are a, a fair amount of like well-established small producers in this area, uh, vegetable and meat. Well, that's good. That's good. That's good. Jeremiah, you've been sitting over there. You haven't heard a whole lot from you. I talk, I talk a lot. Even it's in the expert here. <laughs> so um so what do you do what's a week in the life of jeremiah look like basically in, you know i mean there's obviously a pretty clear delineation here that maggie does most of the sales and marketing stuff and then mine's mostly the production stuff so it's um just managing the cattle the sheep and the and the pigs um moving stuff around we we have uh Everything on the ranch here, we've put in, I think, 19 miles worth of electric fence. So we've got about 40 different pastures that range in size anywhere from five acres to 120 acres. The average being probably around 40. Uh, so we, we move those around um, through those, move cattle and sheep through those pastures. The watering system, there's about nine miles of, of water line through this place. And so we'll we'll move everything around. Rotations can vary anywhere from multiple moves a day down to you know maybe a week at a time in in, in some of those larger pastures that that we really have trouble subdividing. So large pastures with trouble subdividing I, I know how that feels too <laughs> yeah yeah so those a lot of those bigger pastures that are on the 100 to 120 acre range they're just we we set up a lot of these based on mostly on geography it the the land here it's they call it the hill country for a reason right and and so it, a lot of these pastures are really hilly and this place has been overgrazed and eroded and so there's real thin soils so trying to put a step in post into a half inch of soil and solid rock is you know that doesn't work difficult. yeah yeah it's tough you'd need better posts than what i've got <laughs> <laughs> so so in those cases we we utilize or those more permanent pastures uh, and don't just leave them in there a little longer and don't worry about trying to subdivide it 
I, I face some of those same challenges with terrain. I mean, it's, uh, I'm in a paddock that's 167 acres and I've already sawed it in half and there's just not another practical way to get across that Canyon. So it's right. one ridge to the next and it's broken in half where, where we can get it across in the one spot. Right. Now, and, yeah, then, and then, and then just a mile South of there, I've got, 550 acres that i can set up on strip grazing that i can get across with poly reels right yeah oh. and that's that's the way a lot of ours is i mean we've got just a few clean pastures that used to be fields at one time uh that we, where we can kind of strip graze most of it is is these bigger kind of brushier areas that are you know up and down and creek bottom and ridge top and that sort of deal you talked earlier about, you know, that you had some ground that was, had, had a really strong canopy cover of trees on it and it's really mm -hmm. brushy and undergrowth. You talked about pigs doing the clearing. Have the pigs done a lot of the work in clearing out that underbrush so you can graze, you know, other, so you can graze some ruminants through there? Like, did the pigs go in and clear things up and then you can bring in the goats to make it a little more open? Then you bring in the sheep and then you can bring in the cows. Is that kind of how that works? They've done some of it. Um, a lot of what we've done is is going mechanically clear, and then run the the pigs in there, um, and and that's done well. And basically using the pigs to add fertility back to the soil, and to kind of till up what you know how it is when you go in with the machine and and clear brush. And we're using most of what we've done there in these areas has been skid steer work. So we'll go in with a skid steer and a grapple bucket and just knock these cedars over, pull the stumps up. And so it leaves it pretty rough. Right. And the pigs can go in there and kind of sort of till that stuff up. And then we're feeding them in there. And so they're, you know, putting their manure down and, and tilling all this in. And they do a pretty good job adding some fertility back to soil so we've done that and then and it's it's worked pretty well to bring some grass back and then we've also just ran them in places where we haven't cleared anything and it's too thick to do anything else and just let them go underneath it now i don't know that they've necessarily opened it up enough they've definitely opened it up you know at that big, big height Right. Um, you know, top of the and, shin. And it'll be interesting. Huh? Top of the shin. Yeah, yeah. basically. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how much grass we get coming back in there once it finally starts raining again. Um, but those areas, I think they'll, they'll probably be just relegated to pig areas. Okay. You know, and it'll be a place we can rotate them in and out of and come back to and it, it may it just may never grow that much grass anyways so what is your what's your grass like um uh, the majority of this ranch is covered by old world blue stem whether it's kr or clayberg or yellow or australian or whatever all these different old world blues the old world blue stem and hybrids are and it, it's a lot of that and then we've got some few pieces that that have some big blue stem and and there's a fair amount of little blue stem as well um well i guess but, I, I guess the old world blue stem it does make a lot of volume 
It doesn't need a whole lot of rain. <laughs> the thing about ours is it grows very flat. So it actually, it doesn't make a lot of volume for us. Really? Because it doesn't, it's, y'all's may be different, but I, it's not real upright. It, 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 once it gets drought stressed or grazed very hard, it kind of flattens out and looks, it almost looks like a thin bladed crabgrass. Okay. And then it puts up a seed head like immediately. The, the stuff that I've got that we, we, customer cows are eating it. And Tim, I know you're listening. Your cows eat the crap out of old world blue stem. And it's probably because he's got a couple of pastures full of it down at his place where his cows came from. So this is the first group of cows I've had on the ranch that really go out and seek it out. Like we moved them yesterday morning and that's where they went. They went for the couple of big old world blue stem patches and they're mowing them down. I mean, they're eating, they're eating 40 to 50% right off the top, taking the seed heads and stems yeah. with them. And it's pretty impressive the, the way they're using it and they're eating it before they're going after any of my good C4 warm grass, warm season grasses, like the big blue and the Indian grass, they're walking past, you know, the little blue stem to go eat old world. Okay, fine. Go eat it. Like stay in there even longer. Like maybe let's try to graze some more of it down to dirt. But uh, I've got another probably 20 days uh, of pretty similar pastures ahead of them. And I'm going to, I'm using them a little hard. Like I'm, I'm going a little bit hard on the usage because they're, they're really eating that old world blue stem and they're going back on that fourth and fifth day and taking second bites of it. Yeah. If they're doing that on my Indian grass, they'd be in the next pasture, but doing on that, right. you know, go ahead, go ahead, eat, go back and eat that Johnson grass. <laughs> go eat that old world blue stem some more. We'll yeah. stay in here a few more days if that's what y'all are eating. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And that's, that's what we've done is, is it too, is tried to encourage them to eat, eat that stuff you know, and, and leave the, leave the Indian grass, leave the, the big blue stem where we've got it, which we don't, we don't have much big blue. Um, there's a lot more Indian than anything else, uh, you know, out of those kind of more preferable uh, native forages. But um, yeah, we, we definitely try to preserve those and, and we've done some seeding. We've done uh, where we've cleared some of that brush uh, with an excavator, we've gone in and reseeded over the top of it and, and had some pretty decent results, even, even in the rocky country there, trying to get Indian grasses and switchgrass and uh, big blue stem and even eastern gamma grass to come back in there. Well, when I figure out the secret to eastern gamma grass, I'll let you know because I don't have any of it. Yeah, we... We've got a few places that, that have come back up here. Um, there, we, we found just a few bunches initially in that first year we were here. And we've, we've started seeing some more come back more recently. Um, I'm, we're doing some talks with some uh, folks, university folks around here, and hopefully we're gonna start doing some trials on, on replanting some of it and, and doing some little tests and see what will help the germination and, and maybe even doing some plugs and, and trying to, you know, get some like plots of it established. So okay. we'll see how that works out. I, I don't know. 
Uh, I know from what I've seen on this ranch, we had some old farm ground that got replanted and it didn't do much. It didn't do much. About 15 years later, he went back and he planted some Forbes back in it. In addition to the native seeds that he'd put in there. And then with a matter of years, things start popping up and it took a, it took a hard graze and a dry year with a very timely rain after I went through those areas. Next year, we went down there. First time we'd seen, you know, the tall prairie grasses, anything, anything better than little blue stem. Yeah. And, you know, all of a sudden we started, started seeing, you know, seeing all the sweet clover and the scurf pea and the big grasses come up. Like, well, what, what caused that? We had to have the Forbes in there. A, you can't, I, I don't think just seeding the grass seed worked. You need to have those native weeds in there for the, for the complex interaction between plants. And putting those in there and then applying a high energy graze event and then getting the right, getting a good timely rain gave everything moisture. And I think it gave a lot of other seeds an opportunity to germinate that hadn't had it before. Yeah. I, I think a lot of times we don't give enough credit to what those, to those weeds for changing the soil composition and, and we don't do a good job of recognizing what they're actually doing and, and why they're there. The weeds are all telling us something. You know, exactly. if, a, if a weed is growing in soil, there's a reason that weed is growing there. The soil yeah. needs something. Does it need shade? Is it deficient in a mineral? Is there a plant next door that needs a mineral that that weed is growing so it can provide really soon? You know, why are the weeds there? They're all there. And I kind of object to the term weed because, you know, as, as, a, as an undesirable plant. Right. Because there's really only two kinds of plants in the pasture. Stuff cows will eat and stuff cows won't eat. Yeah. And, you know, some of us say, well, if you make them hungry enough, they can eat anything. Well, that's true. But when I moved them in here yesterday, they went down there and ate a willow tree. Explain that. Why would they go eat a willow tree first? And eat it first. Yeah. Yeah. So to some extent. A lot of things in the pasture are cow feed, especially the things that people consider a waste or junk or would spray 2,4-D to get rid of because they need more grass for their cows. Well, if you kill all those yellow clovers, like that's what my cattle are eating first thing in the morning. They're going out, they're eating the yellow clovers, they're eating the legumes to get their rumen alive, to get the protein going. Right. Like, why would we want to take that away from the cows? Just so we could, just so we could put it in our trip hopper and haul it out later? Yeah. And so you can have your pasture be exactly whatever your idea of correct is. So it looks good for your neighbor. So it's all the same. Yeah. And that's, that's one good thing about sheep too, is that they, they're going to utilize that stuff that cows don't eat. So by having both of them, we're getting better utilization, you know, out of the land in general, even the places which, you know, is a big part of this ranch where we do have pretty poor grass and there are a lot more, you know, quote unquote weeds. So we talked a little bit about using pigs to go in and kind of clean up an area. And I guess, uh, I guess what I want to know now is like through your, as you're moving through your 40 pastures, your 40 paddocks. So what's going in, like, what's the first one to move to 
to a fresh pasture? Like, is it the cows and then the, the sheep come after that? It, how does that work? It just kind of depends. So, so like I said earlier, those pigs don't really, they're not necessarily commingled with those cows and sheep. They're, we keep them in this one 60 acre pasture and then we're doing that on smaller, you know, smaller areas. Because um, there is wild hog pressure on the other the part of the ranch. Right, 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 right. I remember that now. So, you said you had that, that just that part high fenced. Yeah. So the rest of it will move, you know, we'll just move the cows and sheep through. Uh, the order can vary. Sometimes the cows are first, sometimes the sheep are first. Um, there might, there might be as much as, or as little as one day of rest in between to as much as you know, two or three weeks, kind of depending on how it's, how it's all worked out and where they are in relation to each other and, you know, what we're doing, if we need to work one and not work the other or whatever. And then there's times like right now where we have them combined. You know, we're, we're pretty heavy in drought right now. It, we, we've had, you know, such little rain compared to what we should have had. We've got everything condensed into one herd, basically trying to give everything, all the other pastures as much rest as we can give them. I, I definitely feel the whole drought situation. <laughs> I definitely yeah. feel that. Yeah. So um, I guess I was going to ask, and you kind of answered a little bit, about you know do the sheep follow the cows or do the cows follow the sheep and 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 why would you make a choice to do one or the other i think um probably typically it's the sheep following the cows and that's because the the sheep will eat more of the cattle feed than the cows will eat of the sheep feed initially Okay. Right. So if, and I kind of work a little harder on the animal performance out of the cattle than I do the sheep. The sheep seem to be able to get by on less quality. Right. So it, okay. it's just like if you were rotating finishers in front of dry cows, kind of that same mentality to me. So well, we're, we're trying to, to put the yeah, high, yeah. what you need to have on a high plane of nutrition in front. Right, exactly. And and to me, either the cows are, they either need more access to that grass or the sheep are just better at finding it behind them. One of the two. I don't know what the case is. That makes sense. So that's, that's typically how it goes. Um, you know, you, I hear a lot of people talk about keeping them together all the time and, and, and how you can always just run them together. And, and that hadn't necessarily worked well in our experience. Like I said, I'm doing it right now, but it's kind of out of necessity. The, um, we've run into- What don't you like about issues. it? Huh? What don't you like about it? We've run into some issues like during the winter when we're feeding hay and we'll go put out a bale and roll it out. And if we're doing it, if we're rolling it out in the pasture, the the cows and sheep are in at that time they're going to come mob it i've had you know ewes get stepped on lambs with broken legs and you know because the cows are just running over them to get to the feed and even if they got a bale still sitting out there and you're setting another one down they just 
you know, cattle, it's a cattle work. behavior problem caused by management. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so that that's been, and then there's also the, the deal of, of trying to work them. You know, you've got to get them in there and separate them out. You know, if you need to work cows and um, or work sheep or whatever. And in the way, especially the way we run the sheep, it's kind of everything all in there, whether it's, you know, dry use or use with lambs or lambs that we're growing out to, to butcher. So you kind of have to sort through everything if you need to take some some animals to the butcher. So, and we don't have a lot of store freezer storage. So we tend to make more uh, trips more often to the butcher. So it's not like we're going twice a year, you know, with a full trailer load. Right. Of, of lambs, you know, it's, it's a couple of trips a month where we're taking, you know, one trip we're taking 10 hogs and 10 lambs. And then the next trip we're taking, you know, 10 or 12 beef. So trying to work through all that gets more difficult when you've got all those herd, you know, everything all together. Well, and initially we had tried running them together because we were having pretty heavy predator pressure on our lambs. We lost like half of our lamb crop one year. Um, and so we thought maybe putting them with the cattle in addition to getting more pressure, like even pressure on the pastures that they we had read that they had heard people talk about giving some um, amount of predator control um, or, you know, like a buffer, especially if there were calves in there. Those, right. you know, those, those cows aren't going to play nice with a coyote um that really didn't and that didn't that didn't pan out so dogs are the answer for that okay so that the yeah those, those even those coriani cows with their fancy horns and all that they they really didn't care about protecting the sheep i think they were glad to have the sheep eaten <laughs> take, take their attention away yeah from, uh, there there's one that of mine that just found a new job because she couldn't protect her calf from coyotes even though she's got literally two feet off each side of her head right yeah yeah, yeah. and the cows did a fine job with coyotes i guess because i've never lost a calf to a coyote but uh lambs were a whole different it was almost like they were pushing the lambs in front of that like hey there's this lamb over here do you want it yeah, look at that lamb over there. Yeah. Don't look at my little yeah. scrawny calf. Oh my God, look, look at, at that all lamb. these little babies over here that want to be eaten. I could see that. I could see the cows kind of conspiring to, you know, push the lambs off in the direction of the coyotes. Yeah. yeah. Those shady Corianis. You never know what they're going to do. I'd, man, I've got a couple of them that keep looking at me like they're just waiting for an opportunity to stab me in the soft parts. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have any like that, do you? Actually, no. Really, we don't. They taste the best, so we don't have them for very long. We've been through them. So um, back to that whole predator deal, though, those dogs have been uh, just amazing for us. We, When we went through that last that winter that, where we lost all those lambs, um, I got on a waiting list with a guy out in West Texas that raises some really good guardian dogs. And I had to wait like three months for these two pups. Um, they were like basically uh, 10 month old pups that, that came trained, ready to go. And the day I dumped them out, that was it. They instantly paid for themselves. Yeah. 
I mean, we, we didn't lose. The losses stopped then. And I won't say we haven't lost any lambs since then, uh, but it's it's been few and far between. And it's been in situations where they're in, you know, a bigger pasture and they wind up spread out. So what breed of dog? So it's a, a lot of people call them like a Texas cross or whatever, because it's, it's Pyrenees, Akbosh, and uh, what's the other one? Uh, Anatolian. And, and it, this guy's been doing this for years. And so he's kind of got his own special, you know, he's bred up his dogs basically with that basis. Okay. So how do they live out in the pasture? Just like a sheep or a cow. You don't, they don't have a, you don't put a dog house out for them. We, we do have a, uh, we have a little feeder setup that I built. It's just a, um, a little trailer with, um, with cattle panel around the sides and a roof on it. And it has a, uh, one of those, uh, self feeders in it that holds, you know, 50 or 70 pounds or whatever a dog food. So that's on a little trailer that I can pull behind my ranger. And when we rotate pastures, I'll hook onto that. And the sheep have learned that that's, you know, that's how they know we're moving pastures, right? So especially when I hook onto that and they hear it clanking, you know, moving, they'll uh, they'll come fall in behind and, and just go on to the next pasture. But that thing basically has cattle pen all around it. And then at, the, at one end of it, there's a one foot wide gap at the bottom where they can, where the sheep or the dogs can get in it, but the sheep can't. And that mobile dog house. Yeah. They have separate water from the sheep or they just have to water wherever no. the sheep get water. Yeah, they'll water where the sheep do. They, I mean, they don't ever leave those sheep. They yeah. think that they are sheep. When Jeremiah, Jeremiah took uh, some ewes in the trailer with him to go get those dogs and he had them compart like in the front compartment with the gate closed. And those dogs tried almost killed themselves trying to get in with the sheep. Like that's all they've ever known. They're, they're, the, the guy that raises these does a very good job of bonding them to the sheep. So if, and, and he had like told it. me this when we bought them, that if you take these dogs anywhere, if you take them to the vet, if you, you know, whatever, take sheep with you because they will like freak out. They get real bad separation anxiety, I guess. So, and, and I followed that rule and, and, and they're fine. And that's, Honestly, I can't even, they're not the dog that's going to come up and let you pet them and be real nice. And they're not mean, they're not going to bite you, but they're not going to be your best buddy that's in your lap either. So to basically even to catch them to, I, I had one get uh, into a porcupine one day and got a face full of porcupine quills and needed to take him to the vet. Cause I mean, it was a lot. Yeah. And I wasn't going to try and pull them all out and um so basically we put some sheep in the trailer you know throw a little dog food well it was actually a, uh, some ground beef i use that as a treat once in a while uh you know if we have any broken packages or something like that i'll use that and um go out there with that and got them up in the trailer and that that's how I, you know that's how they get vet treatment that's how they get their shots that's how they you know, got taken to the vet to, to get those porcupine quills out. And that's, 
That's kind of wild, but I guess that's what you really want in a dog. I mean, if, yeah. if you're going to have a dog, if you're going to hire a dog, because honestly, that's what you're doing. You're hiring yeah. a dog to go do that job to keep those sheep safe. You know, some people might think, you know, if you got to take into the vet, what do you mean you got to load up and take three, three sheep with you? Yeah. Well, that's that dog's anchor in reality. Yeah. Like it, it might not even know it isn't a sheep. Yeah, exactly. It's crazy. There was uh, one night, there was a ewe that had been having trouble having a lamb. And so we went out and it was, it was pitch black, maybe like 11 o'clock at night. We went out to go check on her. One of those dogs met us at the road, not a lamb, not a sheep in sight, like nobody else in sight. It met us at the road. We drove over to where we saw the eyeballs glowing in the headlights. And it was every other lamb and, and sheep out there huddled up in one big circle and then that other dog's head sticking up out of the middle of it like one stayed and they sent the other one out as a scout to see what was coming it's amazing and and you really usually won't find those dogs more than 100 yards from a sheep so you know you, you hear a lot of stories and you read about people facebook or whatever and you know, they talk about their dogs, their guard dogs roaming and all that stuff. And that's just not the nature of these, these animals. This, We've never that, found them anywhere else. Yeah, the guy that raised these does such a good job with these that, I mean, they, they just don't run off. They stay right there with those sheep to do their job. They're our number one, they're number one employees, even better than us. <laughs> Oh, it's awful hard to beat dung beetles on my operation, but it sounds like a dog like that really, really could get employee of the month at least yeah. once or twice. I think if you're doing sheep or goat operation, it's, it's mandatory. I mean, we wouldn't, after that, going through that first winter without them, I wouldn't do it again. We drug our feet for a long time and we got dogs that we tried to train, but I'm, I'm not very good at ignoring an eight week old Pyrenees puppy that looks like that. I'm trying to put it in our bed, you know? So we have, we've had several front yard Pyrenees that didn't, that bonded to me and didn't work out. So when we, you know, the, the, these dogs are not cheap. And so we drug our feet for a while, but. Yeah. They don't eat any food at all. Do they? Right. But the day, the day we got him here, it was like, man, this, it's stupid that we waited this long to do it. Yeah. Freaking 140 pound horse is what they are almost. Yeah. yeah. yeah we have one that's um, part porch Pyrenees, part chicken guardian. <laughs> I yeah. hope, I hope we haven't lost any, haven't lost any in a while. And the other day, actually, um, we were sitting on the front porch middle of the afternoon and we've got three mini Aussies, an old golden retriever and our Pyrenees porch or not a porch Pyrenees. And all of a sudden, like the dogs freak out, like, okay, there's something in the yard. They take off and they go out South toward the field. I'm not thinking anything of it. The little ones all come back. And then Lily, our Pyrenees comes back with a rabbit. Oh, that's pretty good. So, yeah. Yeah, I think she, uh, whether she went out and just found one in the field or whether she got one that was trying to eat our garden. Yeah. Not really important, but, you know, she's, she can get one. That's, uh, I think that's kind of cool. Yeah. yeah. 
So, um, so anything else, you guys? Well, we haven't even talked about where you're at. We've talked about what, what's the name of your operation? The name of our operation is Pure Pastures. Um, Pure. Our website is purepasturestx.com. Okay. You yes. guys are active on social media? We are. One of us, half of us are. Um, <laughs> take, take a guess which one. One of us is Not very you. active. One, one of us is active behind the camera and one of us is active in front of the camera. So that's his, that's his part on social media. Okay. Um, and they're both at Pure Pastures TX as well, Facebook and Instagram. And yeah. Okay. We forget anything today? I don't think so. Pretty much covered it. This is your show. Did you forget anything today? I don't think I forgot anything. Okay. At least I hope I did. And if I did, somebody will probably write in and remind me. I don't know. <laughs> we can do a part two if you get a lot of questions. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's there's always part twos to do. They, it seems, I'll, I'll be honest. A lot of times, you know, it's like get in here and kind of get to struggle. Like, okay, how do we keep the conversation going? Or is this kind of a good place to go? And then you get done. And I go back and I listen and the edit. I'm like, oh, man. We should have done this. We should have done this. I should have done this. I should have done this. And I always end up with notes and notes and notes and notes. Yeah. Next time I have, I don't even want to talk about how many legal pads I've gone through <laughs> in the last 18 months, <laughs> 70 some odd episodes. So, well, that's kind of how my ranching endeavors go too is, oh, we did this. We, we should have done this. We yeah. should have done this. You figure out all the stuff you did wrong and uh, it try to go from there. And that's, that's really. <laughs> that's the biggest learning tool really is doing it wrong you got to do it wrong before you can do it right that's right that's right one of these days i hope i'll do it wrong enough that i'll actually figure out the right way to do some of it yeah we're still trying to get like to that side of the hill we're st we're still very much on the doing it wrong side of the hill but surely oh, we'll get there. i'm sure a lot of us feel that way but we got to remember that there's folks that are still climbing the hill that are looking up to us that's true yeah, that's true. So, no matter where you are, you are where you are, and it's always it's a journey. And uh, I guess the fun is getting there, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, guys, we'll let you go and go ahead and enjoy the rest of your day. Appreciate thank you joining you. me. Yeah. Yep. Thank you, Brian. All right, gang. Enjoy the rest of your week. <laughs>